And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me, for John baptized with water, but now you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go up into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Just hand it to Jim. Thank you. And you may be seated. I'll encourage you, if you are hoping to stick around with us and you think you might be coming back next week, to uh, go on to our uh, either Spotify, iTunes, our website, and listen to uh, last week's sermon, which was an introductory sermon. I don't often do this, but introductory sermons are important because they kind of set the tone, the pace for all that we're going to be doing Obviously, today, Sermon 2, starting in verse 4. Well, in his book, Prince Caspian, which is in the Chronicles of Narnia series, uh, C.S. Lewis tells a story there about Caspian, the true heir to Narnia's throne, uh, who is seeking to reclaim it from his wicked uncle, Miraz. Uh, some 1,300 years have passed uh, since the story of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, but on Earth time, I think it was like a year in Earth time. But in Narnia, uh, Miraz has amassed a great army that is far too big for Caspian and his loyal men uh, to fight against. And so as the story goes, Aslan the Lion uh, must return to rally the, the old Narnians who are in hiding out of fear for their lives, and as he does, as he returns, uh, he first appears to Lucy, uh, the youngest of the four Pevensey children from, I guess, World War II England, who stumbled into the wardrobe, uh, who, of course, is overjoyed uh, to see Aslan. Uh, Lucy begs Aslan to uh, please uh, make yourself known to the others who are sleeping in the wood, and he appeared to her first, and, and, but uh, he instructs her to go return to her siblings and to urge them to follow Aslan, even though at first they won't be able to see him, uh, and that he will reveal himself to them in time. And so Lucy, very discouraged, responds, oh dear, I was so pleased to find you again but I thought you'd come roaring in and frighten all the enemies away like last time. And so Lucy buries her face in Aslan's mane and, and she's sad. But as she's there, as she's hiding in his mane, Lucy begins to experience an inner transformation. A lion-like strength begins to surge through her body and she realizes that there is magic in Aslan's mane. Lucy sits up. She wipes a tear from her eyes. She looks at Aslan, and Aslan says, Now 
you are a lioness, and all Narnia will be renewed. But come, we have no time to lose. And so Lucy runs, and she awakens her siblings and uh, says to them, please come follow me. And if you've read the books or seen the movies, it seems like Lucy is always trying to get them to follow her because Aslan's calling. And they kind of wake up, and they wipe the sleep from their eyes, and reluctantly they follow her, and they gradually begin to perceive the lion's presence. And they begin to gain the same strength that she had. Finally, they arrive at a hill. And the hill, if you've read the book, uh, is revealed to us to be the place where the stone table was, the place where Aslan once sacrificed himself. And he climbs to the top of the hill and he turns toward the four children and he says, now the moon is setting. Look behind you. There is the dawn beginning. We have no time to lose. Aslan then lifts his head, shakes his mane, and he lets out a mighty roar. And the sound thunders throughout the land into field and wood, rousing the long slumbering people of Narnia and even the enemy. Another battle was set to begin. Now Lucy Pevensey and her three siblings and the 11 disciples in Acts chapter 1 are a lot alike, aren't they? It seems that, like Aslan, Jesus is always uh, trying to convey to his followers, guys, listen, I have a plan. I know what's happening. And the power is in me to fulfill this plan. And I want you to trust me. I want you to follow me. I want you to, to trust me even if you don't understand it. Of course, after Jesus arose from the dead, we might expect his followers to be a little clearer in their minds, but we see the same old disciples here asking Jesus dumb questions. Now that he's accomplished salvation and he's defeated death, uh, he's trying to tell his followers, listen, I am going to restore the kingdom. I will frighten all of your enemies away. But I'm going to do much of my work through all of you. Acts chapter 1 verses 4 through 11 is Jesus' battle plan in summary form. Jesus will send his disciples out, but not until he fills them with a lion-like strength, the power of his spiritual presence, and they will go out, and they will act on his behalf, and through them, the gospel message will sweep the world by storm. But we can relate with these men, can't we? These men are still learning. And as we saw last week, these men, Jesus' followers, need to be prepared. They're not quite ready yet for all that lies ahead. If you're taking notes this morning, I have a simple title for the message. It is a pivotal promise. A pivotal promise. You know, as I've prayed for us as we 
begin to study this book, and I, I was telling the pre-meeting prayer folks this morning, I, I feel like I've prayed more for this series than, than any other. I have asked the Lord to make clear to us, to Grace City Church, the role of the church in between the two comings of Christ. Friends, there is a lot of misunderstanding as to the role of the church as we await Jesus and his second coming. There's confusion. There's misunderstanding about specifically how to interpret the scripture, and we're going to look at that a little bit more. We'll look at that actually a lot more. But I've prayed that God would help us see what is our calling? What is Grace City's calling? I've asked the Lord to give us a love for the church. God, give us a love for the local church. Help us to see that this is the dearest place on the earth. And I think, friends, that God has work for Grace City to do. But friends, our need is not opportunity. There is plenty of opportunity. Our need, by the way, is also not to have a plan. Friends, do you want to do great things for God? Do you want to be obedient to the call to follow Jesus and to, to take up your cross in whatever spaces and places he has you, whether or not you're a part of this church or another church? Do you want to do great things for God? If your answer is yes, then I want to tell you something, and this is what, Acts wants to, this is what Luke wants to tell us. If that's the case, friends, then we need, more than ever, we need the power of his Holy Spirit and the presence of the Savior in our lives. Acts 1, 4 through 11 is about his promise to give his church exactly what they need, his power and his presence. And friends, that's our greatest need yet still today. So let's use our time today to consider this, this pivotal promise here in Acts 1, 4 through 11. I'm going to break this into two sections for you. The first is the promise of power. The second is the promise of presence. The promise of power and the promise of presence. Number one, the promise of power. If you want to go ahead and turn back a little bit in your Bibles to Luke chapter 24, I'm going to read a little bit of this account because Luke 24 is another account of this same story, and it will help us to understand Acts chapter 1, because he fills in some details. I'm just going to read uh, verses 44 through 49. Jesus, of course, has appeared to his disciples. He's getting ready to ascend. Verse 44 says this, Then he has said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed 
with power from on high. Okay, so Jesus has just been risen, raised from the dead. He's on the earth now for 40 years, as we saw last week, 40 days rather, as we saw last week. He's been teaching his disciples, he's been teaching them about the kingdom of God. But in Luke 24, what does Jesus do? Jesus connects all that's been happening and all that will happen to the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And he shows them that in the scriptures, that Israel's Messiah, the Christ, would suffer and die and on the third day rise from the dead so that forgiveness of sins could be given to people all over the world. But, as the Old Testament says, this Messiah would also be a king, a great king, from David's lineage. And his reign would bring about a time of great restoration on the earth. For example, I don't know if Jesus referred to this passage, but in Isaiah 32, Isaiah says that in the last days, a king will reign in righteousness. And accompanying the king's reign will be God's promise to pour out his Holy Spirit. Isaiah says, when the Spirit is poured out from us from on high, justice, righteousness, and peace would cover the land. And Peter would later connect this outpouring on the day of Pentecost. We'll get there soon uh, with the, the prophet Joel's prophecy in Joel chapter 2. So Jesus is doing this. He's making all ends meet. He's tying a bow on his ministry. He's showing his disciples, confused as ever, that he is the goal and the purpose of the scriptures. And that every page whispers and sometimes even shouts his name. The disciples, loved ones, are getting ready to enter into a new era when they will begin to see all of this take place. And we're in that era today because we're still waiting for that return of the king. Now, back in Acts chapter 1 and verse 5, thanks for bearing with this introduction a bit. Jesus compares this outpouring of the Spirit with the baptism of John. He told his disciples to wait for the promise of the Father. Verse 5, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So the baptism of John, you remember, was a baptism of repentance. John was calling on the Israelites to repent of their sins and, and be baptized as a symbol of, of washing away their sins. And, and that baptism, John says, was preparatory. He says, listen, I'm not the Messiah. There's one coming that's mightier than I am. And he's going to baptize you not in water, but in the Holy Spirit. It was preparatory. It, it anticipated what Ezekiel saw as the heart-cleansing work that Jesus accomplished through his death and resurrection. And just as in water baptism, as water envelops a person, that word baptism in the Greek, baptizo, means to immerse fully, the promise of the Father would involve the full immersion with and in the Holy Spirit. Now you see, the Jews, I guess, had a bit of a problem. The disciples had a bit of a problem. They believed that Jerusalem, that Israel was to be the central point, the central meeting place, the central capital, you might say, of this great kingdom. That all the nations would flood to Jerusalem where the king would reign. 
And so we'll have to be merciful on the disciples today. They're going to ask a couple of dumb questions, or at least one dumb question. But we'll forgive them, because this is actually a good question in verse 6 that they're asking. He says, so when they came together, they asked the Lord, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? We don't blame them because Jesus has been teaching about the kingdom of God for 40 days. He's been talking about this great end time outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So the logical conclusion must be in their minds that the long-awaited kingdom of God will be restored to Israel. Rome will be overthrown. Jesus will be established as king. And Jesus replies to them. He says, in my words, hang on just a minute you have a little bit, a couple of things off. Your timeline is off, for sure. Your location is off. And, and, and not only are they off, they are way off. Disciples, you are looking, I'm still paraphrasing, you are looking for a visible kingdom to which the nations flock. That will happen but that is for a later time that the Father has determined and hidden in his purposes. But that's not for you to worry about right now. The Father has far bigger plans. The nations are not coming here. You are going to go to the nations. And yes, the promise of the Father, the receiving of the Spirit, yeah, it's for you. But it is for all people. It will start with you, the first witnesses of what I have done. You will receive power. You will bear witness to me. But oh my, your testimony will cascade down to others who will receive it and believe it and receive the Spirit and become witnesses just like you. Why? Because as Peter will tell us later, the promise is for you and for all those who are far off, as many as the Lord God shall call. Jesus wants his disciples to remain in Jerusalem, not because Jerusalem is the happening place. I mean, yes, it will start there. No, no, he wants them to remain there because what was written and fulfilled must be proclaimed by them all throughout the world. And they can't go do this until they're clothed with power from on high. Friends, this, this right here is a key moment in the history of Jesus' church on the earth. The moon is setting. The, the dawn is beginning. And Jesus wants his followers to focus, focus on the mission, not the minutes. Their testimony of what they have seen, not the timeline of what they think should be. You see, friends, Jesus doesn't mock them like I am. Jesus doesn't make fun of their question. He doesn't deny their expectation of a visible kingdom, of a visible rule where he reigns. No, he just frames it. The kingdom will be revealed in their spirit-empowered witness of the salvation that Jesus has purchased. This is a kingdom indeed, but it's not a political one. It's a spiritual one, and it's one that will cover the entire earth. You know, friends, if you think about it, Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 is a good rough outline for the rest of this book that we're studying. The power of the Spirit will be the prerequisite for the continuing ministry of Jesus through the church 
all the way through to Acts chapter 28 and really throughout the church age until he returns. And friends, it's going to be important for us as good students of the word to distinguish as we read Acts between what is descriptive, in other words, what actually happened in time, and what is prescriptive, what ought to continue on in the future. For example, Pentecost, that was descriptive. It was a unique, unrepeatable event in the life of the early church. It's descriptive. But the promise of the Father, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, is for all that the Lord calls to salvation. It's prescriptive. The apostles were the firsthand witnesses of the gospel event. They saw the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus with their own eyes. So they have a unique role in the establishment of the church. That's descriptive. It's not repeatable. But friends, all believers are called by God to be witnesses to the gospel word, as we will see. That's prescriptive. So Acts 1.8 was fulfilled in time, descriptive. But the power of the Holy Spirit for witness will be perpetually necessary until Jesus returns. So imagine this scene, if you will. Jesus is about to leave. These men have walked with Jesus every day for three and a half years. They've seen him die They've seen him rise again. And as Jesus said in John, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come back for you. But for a little while, as Alistair Begg says, I'll be working remotely. I'll be, I'll be working from home. And so in John 14, Jesus says, what, what's going to happen is this. The Father will give you another helper. And he will be with you and and in you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. And just as water fills a pitcher, God will fill his people with the blessed Holy Spirit to sanctify them, to embolden them, to bear witness to the truth of the gospel. And friends, if you're a Christian here today, Romans 5.5 says that the spirit of truth, almighty God, has been given to you Two, you have the Spirit. My friends, that makes me ask. We're going to be hearing a lot about the Holy Spirit in this book. Do we take the, the presence, the power of the Holy Spirit for granted? You know, one of the dangers of being good Reformed people is that we overemphasize the work of Christ to the neglect of the work of the Spirit. We want to be good reformed people who believe in the truth of the gospel, but also good charismatic people who believe that the work of the Spirit is still happening in the church today. We have to mesh those things together if we want to see God use this church. Do we take him for granted, though? We need power, friends. And I don't want you to be thrown off by this word power. We, when we think of power, we think of great feats of strength. We, 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 think of, we think maybe of like what the apostles did where Peter walked by and his shadow fell on people and people were just healed and miraculous things happened and, and demons were cast out and the dead were raised. And 
And don't get me wrong, those things, the miraculous things have happened throughout the history of the church as the, the Spirit has sovereignly enabled ordinary men and women like you and me to, to prove the truth of the gospel by these things. Jesus' point in Acts 1.8 is that this power is a power for witness. And we'll talk a lot more about that. But friends, let's not assume that Holy Spirit power equals the extraordinary. Jesus said that when the Spirit of truth came, that he would guide us into all truth. That he would take of what is mine and he would declare it to you, to his followers. Jesus said he would convict the world of righteousness and sin and judgment. It's the Spirit of God who empowers you and me to live as Christians in a world that right now, for now, is under the temporary influence of the wicked one. It's the Spirit of God who empowers you and me to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. It's the Spirit of God who empowers us to enter into the lives of people who are hurting and who are lost and to open up our mouths and to bear witness, Acts 1.8, to the life-changing good news of Jesus Christ. It's the Spirit of God who empowers preachers behind pulpits to speak the word and people in pews to hear and do the word. It's the Spirit who empowers us to endure suffering as good soldiers of Jesus Christ, to bear patiently with rude people and rebellious children. And then it's the Spirit who enables us to repent and ask forgiveness when we fail to do so. It's the Spirit who gives us that strange hope when there is visually, visibly no other possible way out. The power of the Spirit is not always felt. It doesn't always feel like a nice cup of coffee. But for the Christian, this power is always needed and it's always available. And this is God's promise to us. So let's not take the blessed Holy Spirit for granted, especially as we study this book. So that's the promise of power. Next, let's turn our attention to verses 9 through 11, the promise of presence. In verse 9, Acts, Luke tells us that when he had said these things, Jesus, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Again, put yourself there. I mean, just, just imagine the visual of what this would have looked like. Levitation. Jesus' glorified body rising up off of the ground. I mean, they've seen miracles. But th this, is, this, is, this takes the cake. The Bible tells us that as he was taken away and hidden by a cloud, a picture of his glory, Jesus was seated at the right hand of the Father. Now, a perceptive Jew would have thought about prophecy at this time. Maybe they would have thought back to Daniel chapter 
7, verses 13 and 14, which says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting kingdom which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Luke is documenting the assumption of the kingdom of God by Jesus Christ. And Jesus' resurrected body is here translated into the hidden realm of heaven where he is now in this very moment, friends, reigning over all things, ruling as the only rightful king. Scholars call this moment in his accomplishment of salvation his session. And from there, Hebrews 6 says, he serves as our high priest and advocate where he ever lives and pleads for you and me before the throne of God above, as we just sang. We have a perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. He pleads the blood and righteousness before the Father day and night for our continual forgiveness, 1 John 2, 2. Think about this, friends. Think about this. No, if you're a Christian, it is not your obedience. It is not your faith that makes you acceptable to God. Oh, those are important, don't get me wrong. But that doesn't make you acceptable to God. It's the blood and righteousness of Jesus. If you were to go the rest of this day and not sin one time, let me tell you, you wouldn't move one millimeter closer to God. But if you go through the rest of this day and you can't stop sinning, let me tell you, if your trust is in Christ, you won't move one millimeter away from God. Why? Because Jesus is interceding as your high priest, day and night. Even the silent advocacy of the wounds of his hands and feet are seen ever before the throne of God who intercedes for you. You want to do big things for God? <laughs> Friends, you can't take one breath without our great high priest interceding for you and for me. Jesus is taken out of sight. And Luke tells us that these men looked intently into heaven. That's the meaning of that phrase, gazing into heaven in verse 10. Again, we don't blame the disciples. They've seen miracles before, but again, this takes the cake. And Jesus also had a habit of disappearing from their meeting places after he resurrected. So maybe they were kind of used to that and they thought he was playing hide and seek again and maybe he was going to come back again. But, but here, Jesus makes a point to depart while they're still watching. This feels final, doesn't it? It feels, it feels like this is the conclusion of Jesus' earthly ministry. And now he's in heaven to stay for a time. He's gone. He's gone. Or is he? Is he? It's interesting to note that two men in white, 
which is supernaturals, angels, they, they appear again. The first time they appeared was at the resurrection. Now they're here at the ascension. Both times they appear to, to, to clear up a question that was on the minds of the confused. And so at the empty tomb, the women were perplexed. And so the angels asked them, why do you seek the living from among the dead? He's not here. He's, he's risen just as he said. But here at the ascension in verse 11, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into to heaven? It's as if they're asking, what are you looking for? Don't, don't you remember that he himself told you that he is going to prepare a place for you and that he's going to come back and he's going to bring you to, to himself forever? He's, he's going to, to come back for you, but, but there you are worried about the timeline again. There you are worried about the minutes again. He, he gave you a task, but you're not going to do this alone, disciples. Now go back to Jerusalem. Go back to Jerusalem. He will be with you there more closely than he ever has before. How? How is the son able to be with his people even though he's ascended and the answer is the promise of the Father, the Spirit. The Heidelberg Catechism puts it like this in question 47 or 48, 47. How is Christ, after his ascension, localized in heaven and yet with his people no matter where we are? According to his humanity, Jesus is not on earth, but according to his deity, Jesus is never absent from us. Jesus is God, so that means he's omnipresent. But when he speaks here, or when he speaks, for example, of being with us always, Matthew 28, he's not with us bodily, spatially. He's with us spiritually. And it's his spirit, the third person of the Trinity, that joins us to them, him. So, that we're, so where Jesus is, where the spirit is, Jesus is also. That's why Jesus can say in Matthew 18, wherever any two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in your midst. He's with us by his spirit. Remember how in John 15, Jesus says, I am the vine and, and you are the branches. Abide in me. Well, how can I abide in him when, when he's in heaven? Friends, we're connected to the vine by virtue of our union with him. And it is his spirit, the same spirit that dwelt in him that now dwells in us and from which we draw his life just as the branches of a grapevine draw life from the vine itself. Scholar F.F. F. Bruce is helpful here when he says the disciples had seen Jesus go in power and glory, in power and glory, he would come back. But an interval would elapse between his exaltation and his perusia. That word perusia is the Greek word for coming. It just means his second coming. And that in that interval, the presence of the Spirit would keep his people in living union with their risen, glorified, and returning Lord. Christ is ascended but his abiding presence and energy fill the whole book of Acts and the whole succeeding story of his people on earth. That's us. 
His exaltation at God's right hand means that he is the more effectually present with his people on earth always to the end of the age. Friends, the point of this passage and the reason why it's here in the book of Acts at this place is that Jesus' disciples cannot be on mission apart from his power and his presence. We who are on the other side of Pentecost have already received this promise. But friends, and I'm closing here, we so often lack a proper filling of the Holy Spirit, don't we? Paul would later write to the Ephesians and say that for the Christian, the preferred condition to being drunk with wine is to be being filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what that verb literally means. It's active, present, active. Be being filled. It's a call to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And today there is available to us, the church, a greater measure of the presence of Christ first sent to the church at Pentecost and continually experienced throughout the book of Acts. We believe in one baptism and many fillings. But friends, so often, and I'll speak for myself here, I am so much like a pre-Pentecost disciple of Jesus. So often I am numb to the word. I am so often focused on my plan, not his. I'm, I'm worried about the temporary, not the timeline, the, the minutes, not the mission. Aslan has a plan, but I'm sad. I'm hiding away. Friends, as I've studied church history, you have studied church history, I, I've never seen a man or a woman who's done anything for God unless they were actually filled with the Spirit. Any names that you remember was a person who was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, they weren't perfect. They were, church history is filled with many sinners who have many flaws, just like me and you. And they suffered immensely in the calling that God had for them, for many of them. But they were men and women who were filled with the Spirit. This past week, Pastor Aaron reminded me of Hudson Taylor, the founder of the China Inland Mission. If you don't know Hudson Taylor, I encourage you to read about him. Many hundreds and thousands of Chinese men and women and boys and girls are saved today because of his ministry in the 1800s. But oh my, Hudson Taylor suffered immensely. He experienced very slow progress in his ministry. He lost so much in his ministry. He lost several children. He lost his wife in his ministry. So how did he do it? How did he wake up every single day? How did he continue on? Remember the Pevensey children? What was it that enabled them to have confidence for the battle that was ahead, even though they were very small? Aslan. He gave them eyes to see him. And you know, I think C.S. Lewis 
wasn't making a mistake when he decided to put that scene at the hill of the stone table. How could Susan's grief melt away because of her sin? How could those boys become looking like men and take up their arms with confidence when just a little while ago they were terrified? Why, they were at the stone table where Aslan once died in their place. It's almost like C.S. Lewis is saying to all of his readers, look, I want you to see what happened to these boys and girls to become like men and women with confidence and go out to the battle. I want you to see how it happened. How did it happen? They saw Jesus at the hill where he gave up his life so that they could live forever. Loved ones, it's our union with Jesus that gives us rest today. It's our union with Jesus by faith that brings about the confidence that you and I need, not for mission, but just to wake up in the morning, to get out of bed in the morning. I'll ask it again. Are you hoping to do great things for God? Do you want to see Grace City Church or whatever church you're from thrive on its mission to make much of Jesus in whatever city it's in. Loved ones, unless you and I abide in the vine, abide is just an old word for fellowship, for for communion. Unless we, we have a life of communion with Jesus, who today is more effectually with us now than the disciples ever experienced while he was on the earth, We are able to follow him wherever he's calling us to. But if you do not, if you do not abide in him, you may do great things for God, but you will burn out in the process because you are doing the work of the spirit and the power of the flesh. And oh my, I've experienced it too many times reason why Hudson Taylor could continue to bear fruit for God, even in the face of grace, great loss, was because he stopped and remained at the stone table, the hill that was called Calvary. So what does it mean to abide? Well, friends, we abide by faith. We commune with Christ by faith. And friends, faith demands effort. Even though that effort doesn't save us, faith requires something of us. Faith is both passive and active. Faith rests. Faith moves us. We don't love Jesus more by coasting along and getting a dose of him just on Sunday morning or by listening to a podcast. You won't survive physically with just a morsel of bread in the morning. You you need to feast. You need to feast on food every single day if you're going to survive. And it's the same for this church. It's the same for us. Hudson Taylor offers his perspective on the effort of faith. He says, communion with Christ requires our coming to him. Meditating upon his person and his work requires the diligent use of the means of grace and especially the prayerful reading of his word. Many fail to abide because they habitually fast instead of feed. This is why it was a regular occurrence for his children to be awakened at night, 
to the striking of a candle behind a curtain at two in the morning because that's the only time Taylor could read his Bible and pray uninterrupted from the affairs of life. The Pevensey children would go off into the battlefield. The war would commence. But I think Aslan wanted them, wanted them to remain spiritually at the stone table. The place where they saw their life being purchased for them. And friends, we need the power of the Holy Spirit more than we ever had before to open our minds, to understand the scriptures, to take of what is Jesus's and to declare it to us. But friends, I just want to encourage you today, if you're here and you're worried about timelines and you're worried about minutes and you're worried about what's next, just as Jesus said to Peter at the end of John, don't worry about him. Don't worry what's going to happen to him. You follow me. You follow me. And that's scary when you don't know where that's going to be. You don't know what, where he's going to lead you. You don't know what path he's going to take you on. You don't know where that cross is going to end up. But you can know today that he's trustworthy because his word says he is. And everything he did in his life and his death and his resurrection and ascension is for the sake of you and me being held fast when we follow him, afraid. Again, in the words of Hudson Taylor, and I'll end with this. Not only will Jesus never leave me, but I am a member of his body, of his flesh and bones. The vine is not the root merely, but all, root, stem, branches, twigs, leaves, flowers, fruit. And Jesus is not that alone. He is soil and sunshine, air and showers. And 10,000 times more than we ever dreamed, wished for, or needed. The pivotal promise is fulfilled the Spirit's power and the Son's presence is only but a breath away. Amen.